Welcome to Reading Marx's Capital with David Harvey. This course consists of a close reading of Karl Marx's Capital, Volume 1, by CUNY Graduate Center Distinguished Professor David Harvey. The course was recorded at the People's Forum in 2019. The People's Forum is a movement incubator for working-class and marginalized communities and an accessible educational and cultural space in New York City. The page numbers Professor Harvey refers to are valid for both the Penguin Classics and Vintage Books editions of Capital. Course materials are available at peoplesforum.org slash capital David Harvey. This episode is Class 1, The Prefaces and Postfaces by Marx and Engels, as well as the first section of Chapter 1, The Commodity. That section is called The Two Factors of the Commodity. This was recorded live. Please be mindful there will be some changes in volume. Uh, a great pleasure and privilege to uh, actually be able to teach uh, a class in this space. And I think it's fantastic that this space has become open to us so that I can uh, take a, a, a class uh, away from the CUNY Graduate Center and put it in the public domain. Uh, I think we should do a lot more of that. And in order to do that, however, you have to have some place where you can go. Uh, and having this place to come to is uh, a, a fantastic uh, resource, which uh, I am delighted to support and try to uh, help. So part of the uh, of that idea was to take over uh, some uh, one of one of the courses I used to teach many years ago uh, on Marx's Capital, Volume One, and do it again. Uh, over uh, here. Now, uh, the Volume 1 lectures are actually on the web, uh, but they were delivered in 2007. Uh, the world has changed a lot since then. I've changed a lot since then. And one of the things that Marx and Engels wrote when they uh, issued the second edition of the Communist Manifesto in 1872 they kind of said, well, really and truly, things have changed so much that we should really do the manifesto all over again. Uh, but uh, we didn't have time to do that, so we presented it as a historical document. So there is a historical document as how uh, I was looking at capital and everybody, you know, and collectively was looking at, uh, at capital back in 2007, and you can contrast it with how it looks uh, uh, today. Uh, and one of the actually great things that happened to me over my lifetime was that I managed to teach uh, Marx's Capital, Volume 1, at least once a year for nearly 40-odd years. And by and large, uh, if you do that, you would expect to be incredibly bored uh, by the time you got to the third year and then sort of go on autopilot uh, from, from then on and, and go down as that legendary professor who couldn't imagine doing anything other than teaching the same goddamn text for 40 years, and what kind of innovation is that? But the great thing about Marx's capital is it has so many angles and so many wrinkles that actually you find that new things out every time you go through it. Uh, and the other thing is that since uh, it's a text which is meant to illuminate the reality around us, as the reality around us changes, so different aspects of the text 
suddenly emerge as being uh, very much uh, more significant, and I will uh, illustrate some of that a little later on. Now, the idea of this, uh, of these sessions is to get you to read this book. And as you know, uh, it's a very thick uh, and rather intimidating book. So um, the question is, well, why would we bother when there are so many kind of uh, questions which are of immediate interest to take time out to, to read this? And, and there's been a number of uh, reactions, I think, over the years to me uh, suggesting that people should read this book. Back in the 1970s, there was a quite a long and quite a significant uh, radical student movement. And since uh, I was teaching at Johns Hopkins, and there are only four of us who were on the faculty who were actually in support of the anti-war movement at the time, I had a reputation of being one of the few radicals uh, on a very conservative campus. And so I would get a lot of students who would come and take my class on uh, on Marx's capital. And uh, they would come in the class and I would say, well, the idea is to read this book. And the immediate response of almost all the students was, that's not very radical. Because at that time, you know, there was a great suspicion about big books and the sort of education and all the rest of it. And so a lot of them wouldn't do it. Because, you know, uh, there were more important things to do. But I was trying to persuade them that actually the insights that can come from this can illuminate a lot of the things that are going on around you in, in very new ways. And so that it's not as if the book is out there and daily life is somewhere else. That the book, actually, when you read it in relationship to daily life, has a lot of, uh, I think, uh, very important things uh, to say. Interestingly enough, uh, today you get the same reaction, but for quite different reasons. Uh, when Chris proposed putting this course online, uh, I think the reaction of many of his uh, uh, colleagues was, uh, you must be joking, because nobody these days is likely to want to sit down and listen for two hours to a commentary on Marx's capital. Uh, the idea being that, of course, in today's uh, social media, and Twitter and everything else, if you can't put it in however many characters there are in a Twitter communication, uh, then nobody's going to listen to you. And so that uh, this idea that we, we would actually uh, spend time reading a whole book uh, is kind of really a, a little, little strange. In addition, education has morphed into uh, a sort of a way of, uh, of uh, absorbing information rather than actually uh, developing critical thinking. And to the degree that this is very much about critical thinking, then this does not really fit in with uh, the general kind of uh, mode of education in the neoliberal corporatist uh, university. So that uh, this is again going against the grain somewhat to, to actually uh, concentrate on reading a book and spend a whole semester on just one book. But one of the things I found in the 1990s, or when I was uh, teaching this, was that students started to say things like, you know, I've never read a book. Uh, I've read accounts of books, but I've never actually read a book. Uh, and you kind of, and they said, but this is maybe the first time I ever read a book that thick. And actually, it turned out it was quite interesting and actually quite enjoyable. And it's quite enjoyable, of course, volume one anyway, because Marx is a brilliant kind of uh, essayist. 
he has all sorts of uh, interesting angles on things. He was a great literary figure. He knew his Shakespeare, he knew his uh, Dante, he knew everything, uh, the, you know, all, all of the literature of the time and all of this features and there are, there are werewolves and, uh, uh, and all sorts of uh, figures from the time. Uh, he obviously liked uh, the Frankenstein Shelley model of uh, factory labor. And so, so Marx uses a lot of those things. So it becomes an entertaining uh, book in many ways because of its literary references. And you can actually, uh, find so many, so many references that you, it's very tempting to sort of say, well, actually what he, what he was really doing was, was X rather than, than examining capital. He was playing around with some literary figures. Uh, there's a recent book by William Clare Roberts on, uh, where, who, uh, insists that Marx was uh, actually uh, using Dante's Inferno and that the different chapters of Capital take you through different levels of the Inferno till you get to the working day and all those kinds of things. And actually, Marx was obviously very impressed with Dante. Um, I, I found uh, when I was doing a lot of research on, on, on Paris and Second Empire Paris, I decided to read a lot of Balzac's novels and i'm reading balzac's novels and i'm thinking hello i've counted this before where is it well it's all in marx and you suddenly realize the next time i read marx it was with balzac in mind and suddenly i saw these figures from balzac sort of walking across the page and 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 in fact uh marx himself was fascinated by balzac balzac a very conservative figure but a figure very alert to class distinctions and uh, Marx apparently told uh, one of his family, I forget which one, that when he finished with Capital, he wanted to write a book about uh, on, on Balzac's novels as a portrayal, not of the capitalist class society then existing in France, but the capitalist society that was in formation. And that's, I think, a very interesting aspect of Marx. He's always talking about things which are in, in motion, in change, and, and, and the like. So the literary references are all over the place, and it makes it fun uh, to read for, for for these kinds of kinds of reasons. But there is, of course, uh, at the centre of the book, a certain structure of argument, and I want to sort of spend a little time uh, at the outset here talking about some of the things that make the reading of the book in the first instance rather difficult. And Marx himself recognised this. Uh, when he, he wrote, uh, uh, in one of the prefaces, which, uh, by and large worth, uh, looking at. Uh, and the, the, the preface, uh, to, uh, the French edition, which, uh, is, I think, uh, particularly interesting. Uh, the French edition of Capital, the, the French had a habit of, uh, sort of publishing things as, uh, sort of in, in sequence. So there would be a feuilleton every month, a chapter every month, something of this kind. And there was a proposal to, to publish, uh, uh, the French translation of Marx's capital in that term. And so Marx writes the idea, writes about this idea to, to citizen Maurice Rachat, and he says, Dear citizen, I applaud your idea of publishing the translation of capital as a serial. In this form, the book will be more accessible to the working class, a consideration which to me outweighs everything else. I'll come back to that in a minute. That is the good side of your suggestion. 
But here is the reverse of the medal. The method of analysis which I have employed, and which had not previously been applied to economic subjects, makes the reading of the first chapters rather arduous. And it is to be feared that the French public, always impatient to come to a conclusion, eager to know the connection between general principles and immediate questions that have aroused their passions, may be disheartened because they will be unable to move on at once. That is a disadvantage I am powerless to overcome, unless it be by forewarning and forearming those readers who zealously seek the truth. There is no royal road to science, and only those who do not dread the fatiguing climb of its steep paths have a chance of gaining its luminous summits. Then he adds, believe me, dear citizen, your devoted Karl Marx. Now, the two things about this commentary or point that I want to make. The first is that Marx is very concerned to make this work accessible to the working class. And the working class that he was mainly trying to speak to was uh, the working class in France and in Germany, uh, to a lesser extent in, in Italy and, and, and Spain, uh, and of course uh, in Britain. So Marx is very interested in communicating to that working class, but most of that working class was illiterate, apart from a self-educated artisan working class. So when Marx talks about the, he's trying to communicate, he's trying to communicate with the self-educated uh, working class. The autodidacts of the early 19th century, both in Britain and France, were remarkable people. A lot of them were in trades which had to do with publication, like printers and, 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 and the like. And that working class educated itself. It had no formal education. But I think one of the things that Marx emphasizes and recognizes in his work is that the autodidacts, the self-educated working class, is by far the most dangerous working class. And now we live in a society where formal education is there. But the formal education teaches in a certain kind of way, which actually makes this book less accessible rather than more accessible. When Marx in this book mentions people like Shakespeare and William Blake and, and, and so on, the educated, self-educated working class of the period knew what he was talking about. They read a lot widely. And this is, I think, something that's terribly important about Marx's text, that it's orchestrated in such a way to talk to that class faction. Today, that class faction still exists, but it's in a way been swamped by the formal education. And the formal education, for the most part, teaches you ways of thinking and ways of arguing and ways of being, which are rather antagonistic to the way in which Marx set things up. So Marx was imagining a working class of a certain kind in writing this. And so to some degree, what you have to start to do is to start to think about how he is communicating with that class and to recognize that class. Now my aim in this, uh, and I've always sort of stated this, is to get you to read this text in Marx's own terms. Now, that's a sort of ridiculous thing to say because you don't know what Marx's terms are, 
until you've read the text. And for me to suggest that you should read the text in Marx's own terms, kind of, well, you know, what, what is going to go on here? But I think what this means is that there, there is a, a coming to terms, if you like, with Marx. And that I'd very much like you to take this text and try to come to terms with it. Let the text speak to you. And imagine you're in conversation with the text. The text is not simply telling you, it's also asking you to think about the things that are being proposed and the ideas are being put forward. And I think that that, I, that way of approaching the text means that you're in a better position to come to terms with what Marx's terms are. So part of the exercise is indeed to come to terms with Marx's terms. And in effect, you only do that when you get to the end of the text. And one of the things I always say to people is, well, if you really want to read it in, in, in Marx's terms, then you have to read it again. The second time through, it really makes much more sense than it does the first time through. Because the first time through, you're kind of looking at it and saying, what exactly does this mean? And frequently, Marx does not define what he means until after he's done it. It's not as if he builds with building blocks, which you say, all right, I understand this, I understand with that. It's a more fluid uh, kind of technique. It's a dialectical technique, and I'll get on uh, to that uh, in, in a minute. But Marx's own terms are, of course, uh, addressing a very serious reader who wants to interrogate the text, but is willing to be interrogated by the text. Now, there's a real problem here because everybody has heard of Karl Marx. Everybody has some opinion about Karl Marx. Some people think that Karl Marx is great. It says at the back here that he actually has written the Bible of the working class. Actually, I think Marx would be horrified by that remark. Uh, uh, it, unfortunately, the remark was made by Engels, uh, which is, makes it more, more, more complicated. But, but one of the things I think I would like you to try to do is to put aside some of your pre-existing ideas about who Marx was, what he was trying to do, and what he said in Capital. And that's not always easy to do. And it's not a question that somehow or other people who are pro-Marx are somehow or other going to read it more correctly than people who are anti-Marx. In fact, it doesn't work out that way at all. I remember two or three very frustrating times when I taught members of the residual Communist Party in Baltimore, uh, tried to teach uh, Marx's capital, and it was almost impossible to get them to think about anything other than the slogans to which they were deeply, deeply attached as part of their ideology. I had a very interesting things recently in China, because everybody in China is educated in Marx, highly educated. They take all of these, about at least four major courses uh, on Marx and Marxist thinking and all the rest of it. It's extremely difficult to communicate sometimes with, with Chinese students, because either because they've been told what Marx thinks and they didn't like it and so they don't want to be bothered with Marx, or they've, they've absorbed it, in which case they've got this very dogmatic kind of you know, view of Marx and cannot allow for the fluidity which actually exists in the text in relationship to what is going on around. So I would like you to 
make a bit of an effort to lay aside all sort of pre-existing ideas and so on and say, okay, imagine that I'm actually going to actually read this book uh, as a book uh, uh, without uh, too much in the way of pre-existing baggage. Hard to do, but nevertheless, uh, you can you can have a have a go at it. Now, in setting this uh, text up, Marx, in his prefaces, makes a few kind of comments, which I think I would like to start off with uh, making some remarks about. Uh, in the preface to the first edition, which is on page 89, he's, he's very self-aware that what he's trying to do is to found a new kind of science, a new kind of economic science. And he says of this, beginnings are always difficult in all sciences. And this then leads into the understanding of the first chapter because is, is, is really, really difficult. And he recognizes that. Uh, but he then starts to explain what the difficulty is on the page that follows. He starts off by kind of saying, you know, the, the successful analysis uh, of what is going on in our society uh, depends upon a particular technique of investigation. Uh, but that technique is uh, affected by the, condi uh, the conditions under which the researcher undertakes this task. He begins by saying, in the analysis of economic forms, neither microscopes nor chemical reagents are of assistance. And what he means by this is that the scientific method, as it's generally understood, is experimental and, and, and controlled experiments and all the rest of it, is not something that's available uh, to his inquiry. That, therefore, there has to be another technique. And he puts here this following observation. The power of abstraction must replace both. Now, Marx abstracts in many circumstances in capital. And his abstractions are terribly important to notice. But in abstracting, you always have to ask yourself the question, what is he abstracting from? And what's the validity of this abstraction? For bourgeois society, he kind of says, uh, the, the commodity form of the product of labor or the value form of the commodity is the economic cell form. To the superficial observer, the analysis of these forms seems to turn upon minutiae. It does in fact deal with minutiae, but so similarly does microscopic anatomy. The physicist, he says, either observes natural processes where they occur in their most significant form and are least affected by disturbing influences, or, wherever possible, he makes experiments under conditions which ensure that the process will occur in its pure state. What I have to examine in this work is the capitalist mode of production and the relations of production forms of intercourse that correspond to it. Now, he is focused on the capitalist mode of production. He's not concerned with other modes of production. And he's not concerned with hybrid modes of production. He's concerned with the capitalist mode of production as a 
abstraction in a pure state. So that's what he's going to do. And that's the technique which is available to him. He couldn't have a, do an experiment and say, well, okay, let's do an experiment with capitalism over here or that capitalism over there. No. But he needs a grounding for this experimental abstraction. And that grounding, as he says, is Locus Classicus of England. And England, he says, is the main illustration of the theoretical developments I make. So the abstraction is going to be of a capitalist mode of production in its pure form, and the place where you could best see that pure form was England. Not France and not Germany. Capital was not well enough developed in either France or Germany to come close to the pure form, and therefore he's going to use the English form to look at it. But he then says, intrinsically, it's not a question of the higher or lower degree of development of the social antagonisms that spring from the natural laws of capitalist production. Notice this phrasing, the natural laws of capitalist production. That doesn't mean capitalist laws are natural in the sense that they belong to nature, but that capital has a nature. The capitalist mode of production has a nature and part of what he wants to do is to, is to expose what the nature of a capitalist mode of production is. Because once you've understood that nature, you can then understand the laws of motion of that mode of production. And that then leads to this idea. It is a question of these laws themselves, of these tendencies winning their way through and working themselves out with iron necessity. The country that is more developed industrially only shows to the less developed the image of its own future. Now what he does then is to suggest that the development of capitalism in Germany and France would follow iron laws of development, which could best be articulated by a deep study of how the capital was working and the capitalist mode of production was working in Britain. Now this is a very interesting idea and a very important idea. And I think about it in the contemporary context in the following way. When Deng Xiaoping said, okay, we're going to reform things in China and we're going to let the market system take on the laws of motion. Opened the door in China to the laws of motion of capital. Now, you read accounts of the labor process in China, in, in Foxconn and throughout. And then you read the chapters on the working day and you read, and you'll see that actually, what Marx has done as he's basically told you, you enter into this system and what you will get are the laws of motion which will take you to the point where the capital will be working in a certain kind of way the socialist structure of employment will be destroyed. The migrant labor structure will come in and China will end up looking like England did in the, in the 19th century. And you often wonder, you know, how well Deng Xiaoping understood capital. Had he understood it? And in fact, I think he maybe understood it pretty well. And he knew 
that this was likely to happen. And if it happened, there was nothing that, that could stop it. But this is the point that the economic development of China, once you open those doors, is about these iron laws of tendencies that win their way through and work themselves out with iron necessity across the length and breadth of China. Now, in Marx's time, of course, this was not a feasible kind of discussion, but I think it's interesting to say well, what we're looking at here is an explanation of why labor and the labor process in China has taken the form that it does, that it has. And just reading this text will tell you a great deal about that dynamic. Now, there are peculiar things about that dynamic, to be sure, but this is the sort of way in which we can get the sorts of insights that said that why, when China opened its path to a market and, and the coercive laws of competition suddenly entered in and started to dictate what should happen in China, that the Chinese government lost control entirely of the process and the process took over and all the Chinese government could do would try to manage it as best it could and use uh, some of the processes which exist. Now, in this, in, in the analysis of England and, and British situation, uh, Marx has something very interesting to say. And, and here, I think, we will also understand something about what happens in capital. You need a great deal of information about how this capitalist mode of production is working. Where was that information going to come from? Marx used Engels a lot because Engels was inside of a factory and knew about factory labor and all the rest of it. And there were people around who gave him a lot. And there was a sort of incipient trade union movement he could talk to and the like. But he says, one of the great things about England is that in England, they have exposed so much of what is going on through official channels. And he said, we should be appalled about the circumstances in Germany or France if, as in England, our governments and parliaments periodically appointed commissions of inquiry into economic conditions. If these commissions were armed with the same plenary powers to get at the truth, if it were possible to find for this purpose men as competent, as free from partisanship and respect of persons as are England's factory inspectors, her medical reporters on public health, her commissioners of inquiry into the exploitation of women and children, into conditions of housing and nourishment and so on. So one of the very important things for Marx was the fact that the British had exposed the underbelly of their own mode of production by setting up all of these factory inspectors' reports, and you will see how much of capital is affected. And this is a bourgeois government with a bourgeois state, which is actually exposing what is happening to its labor force through all of these commissions and, and reports and, 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 and the like. So, armed with this information, the interesting question for Marx is, how does this capitalist mode of production work? What are its rules of development? 
And so listen to the language in this preface to the first edition. Even when a society has begun to track down the natural laws of its movement, and it is the ultimate aim of this work, he says, to reveal the economic law of motion of modern society. He wants to find out what that law of motion of modern society is. And part of my purpose in mentioning the China case is to say that the law of motion that Marx is actually looking at is not something which existed in 1867, but does not exist today. That law of motion is inherent in the capitalist mode of production. And to the degree that we have continuously replicated a capitalist mode of production, so the law of motion as Marx defines it prevails today. And we will see the product of those laws of motion going on around us. And he goes on to say, society cannot leap over the natural phases of its development nor re remove them by decree, but it can shorten and lessen the birth pangs. This is, if you like, the problematic that Deng Xiaoping, I think, was looking at. Is it possible to go through the equivalent of capitalist development, shorten the birth pangs and get to the other side? And then he goes on to say this, an important phrase too. To prevent possible misunderstandings, let me say this. I do not by any means depict the capitalist and the landowner in rosy colors. But individuals are dealt here only insofar as they are the personification of economic categories, the bearers of particular class relations and interests. My standpoint, from which the development of the economic formation of society is viewed as a process of natural history, notice that, the capitalist mode of production is going to be seen as a process of natural history. He says, my standpoint can less than any other make the individual responsible for relations whose creature he remains. Socially speaking, however much, he may subjectively raise himself above them. Now, Marx had two phases in his life of talking about the theory of alienation. Alienation in the first phase was a personal loss. The individual was deprived of the possibilities of their own development and their own existence and became alienated in some way. And it was an idealist conception that human beings have been alienated from their own potentiality and their own nature. Here he has a different theory of alienation. The theory of alienation here is that individuals have no power in relationship to the dynamics of this system, that individual choices do not matter. Even the state of mind of the capitalist and the landowner and all the rest of it doesn't matter. Because the laws of motion of capital, once they are instantiated, actually dominate the individuals. And at certain points in capital, you will actually start to feel sorry for the capitalist. Because the capitalist doesn't have any choice either. So one of the immediate things you find yourself doing is we're supposed to live in a society based on choice. 
The right-wing rhetoric is always about choice, 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 freedom of choice, choice. And Marx is kind of saying, they're not free choices. They're actually on, on the big issues. The dynamics and the laws of motion are such as, for example, to produce social inequality, to produce environmental degradation, you go on and on and on and on. You know. And individual choices are not what we're considering here, and individual motivations. So when we get to the chapter on the working day, we'll find Marx saying, it doesn't matter whether the, the capitalist is a good person or a bad person. Because the coercive laws of competition force you to certain employment practices, whether they like it or not. And you either engage in those employment practices or you don't. And if you don't, you cease to be a capitalist. So the question of choice and this idea that individuals are bearers of particular class relations and interests which means that actually an individual can be a bearer of several different class interests. A worker has class interest as a worker. As somebody who is building a pension fund, they have an interest in the circulation of interest-bearing capital and maximizing the rate of return on their... So individuals can be the bearers of many different functions. So, Marx then closes this thing, this preface, with the following kind of comment. He says, the second volume of this work will deal with the process of the circulation of capital. And the third volume will deal with the various forms of the process of capital in its totality. And then he says, the third and last volume, book four, will deal with the history of the theory. Now, the history of the theory is dealt with in three volumes of Theories of Surplus Value. But essentially, you have the three volumes of capital. And notice this term here, the various forms of the process of capital in its totality. That is the subject that he hopes to address in volume three. Now, he never finished volume two, and he never finished volume three. He did sort of finish volume one, and this is as close to a finished text as you will find. But even with respect to volume one, if you read some of the other prefaces, you find that he was kind of saying in, 19, in, in 1873, oh, I should be changing this, I should be changing that. In other words, this was not a fixed text in Marx's mind. It was a text that was constantly being subject to revision. The text we're going to look at is the second edition of, which is a revised edition of the first. The, the later edition which was coming out was the French edition, and when he started to look at the French edition, he started to want to change all sorts of things. So the French translation, actually, uh, is rather different from uh, the German edition with, and, and the English edition, which we're working from, because of those changes. But this idea of the totality is very important in Marx's thinking. 
that he sees the capitalist mode of production as a totality. And he isolates it from other modes of production and other forms of activity and tries to analyze this mode of production. And what I've done is just to try to give a brief idea of what this mode of production looks like as a totality. So if we have this diagram uh, set up, and you've got copies of it in, in, in front of you. And what's, in, what's interesting about this is that the three volumes of capital deal with different aspects of this. Can we get the projection of the diagram on, it's on, it's on here, but not on the other screen. Anyway, volume one is going to deal with the following dynamics. If you start at the bottom, money capital. There's a lot of money in society. Not all money is capital, but capital is money used in a certain way. Capital is money used to make more money. And it is going to make more money by a particular path, by buying commodities. And in particular, buying two commodities, labor power and means of production. And that labor power and means of production are brought into a production process, which is going to produce a new commodity. And the new commodity can be various forms of them, some of them with wage goods, luxuries, means of production, are going to be realized in money form. So there's a realization of value in money form. So you go from money capital, which is the money form, into the commodity form, into the production form, into the commodity form, and into the money form, and then the money is distributed in various forms. Wages, taxes, industrial profit, merchant profit, rent, and interest. And then that then flows back through reinvestment into money capital. And so you get a circulation process. You see another kind of circulation process because some of that money which is distributed is going to constitute as bourgeois demand, state expenditures, worker-consumer demand, which is going to come back as effective demand into the realization of value. At behind this lies, however, something which is going on in relationship to labor power. That labor power has to be reproduced. So the reproduction of labor power. How is labor power reproduced? It's re reproduced by consuming wage goods. That is, some of the goods which workers produce go to supporting the life of the worker so that the worker can survive to come back into production. Behind that, however, lies the nature of the worker, free gifts of human nature and all the rest of it. And what I put at the top is Marx is very interested in various points in the production, reproduction and destruction of human nature and culture. And that also comes back in terms of wants, needs and desires. So that the production of new wants, needs, and desires has been very much about the center, one of the centers of capitalist history. By the same token, if you go to the very bottom area, we're talking about the metabolic relation to nature, the free gifts of nature. 
and this metabolic relation, the production and reproduction and destruction of place, built environments, spaces and the like. So we're dealing not simply with nature as raw nature, but also nature as what Marx calls second nature, that is the nature which has been reconfigured by human action. Now this is the, if you like, a map of the totality. Volume one of Capital, which we're going to read, concentrates almost entirely on money capital through commodities and the production up to the point of realization of value. So this is volume one. Volume two deals with the circulation process as a whole, but that means the realization of value in money form. So that's volume two. Volume through three is about distribution. So these are the three volumes of capital and where they lie. And part of the abstraction which goes on in volume one of capital is that Marx abstracts from questions of realization, saying, in effect, I'm going to deal with that in volume two. I assume that the, the value is realized in volume one. In volume one, you won't find any, any mention much of industrial profit versus merchant profit and rent and interest and, wage and, and the like. You will find stuff about wages. But there's very little about distribution in volume one. So he abstracts from questions of distribution and says, I assume that's all normalized. So if you want to understand the totality, you have to understand where volume one lies in this totality. So volume one does not deal with everything that's going on here. It deals with just one part of it. So there's an abstraction from the totality. Now, I have no objection, and I think you should have no objection, to this process of abstraction. What I object to is people forgetting that the abstraction has been made. And then making it seem as if the statements in volume one are not affected in any way by what's going on in volumes two and three. And so you will find statements when people quote things to me about, oh, well, Marx said in volume one, blah, 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 blah. And my answer is, yeah, yeah, he's right, you know, but you have to understand the abstraction. Now, Marx's abstractions are, as I am going to insist, absolutely critically important for understanding the dynamics of this system and how, how it actually works. So these are the, if you like, the, uh, um, some of the elements which crop up in the preface. But there's one other element that crops up which is critical which is taken up on page 102, 103, which is the postface to the second edition. When there's been a sort of review, somebody has a review, a long review of uh, uh, Marx's book and what, uh, what Marx is talking about. And Marx says about the middle of 102, he says, the method of presentation must differ in form from that of inquiry. The latter, that is the process of inquiry, 
has to appropriate the material and detail to analyze its different forms of development and to track down their inner connection. Only after this work has been done can the real movement be appropriated, appropriately presented. If this is done successfully, the life of the subject matter is now reflected back to the ideas that it may appear as if we had before us an a priori construction. Marx is talking about his historical materialist method. His historical materialist method starts by looking at actual processes on the ground. He will then create abstractions about those processes. And he then uses those abstractions to build deeper understandings. Until in the end, he ends up with a, a matrix of ideas and conceptual apparatuses and the like, which will help him understand what is going on in the reality that is analyzed. It's what you might call the following. It's like a method of descent from the reality into foundational conceptual ideas. Then those conceptual ideas are presented and then they're brought back to the surface to explain the reality. This is a dialectical mode, but it's also a, a materialist mode because it starts with the material reality, develops the ideas and the conceptual apparatuses which are needed to attach to that reality, then uses those conceptual apparatuses to explain that reality. This is the technique he uses. Now, this is very different, as he says, to the dialectical method of Hegel. My dialectical method, he says, goes on to say, is in its foundations not only different from the Hegelian, but exactly opposite to it. For Hegel, the process of thinking, which he even transforms into an independent subject under the name of the idea, is the creator of the real world. That is, with Hegel, you start with the idea, and then out of that comes the reality. And the real world is only the external appearance of the idea. With me, the reverse is true. The ideal is nothing but the material world reflected in the mind of man and translated into forms of thought. And he then goes on to say, I criticized the mystificatory side of the Hegelian dialectic nearly 30 years ago, at a time when it was still the fashion. And he then goes on to say, well, since then, you know, Hegel has been given a very bad time, uh, and he decided that he was going to be actually speaking in support of Hegel by saying, I, I, I openly avowed myself the pupil of that mighty thinker. And even there, even, and even here and there in the chapter on the theory of value, coquetted with the mode of expression peculiar to him. Marx sometimes sort of gets very Hegelian in the way he sets things up. In the Grundrisse, there's a wonderful kind of passage where Marx is getting very Hegelian, and suddenly he stops in the notebooks and he writes, oh, this is all completely Hegelian. I've got to start all over again and get rid of this Hegelian bias. So his relationship with Hegel is very, is very complicated. And he then goes on to say, the mystification which the dialectic suffers in Hegel's hand by no means prevents him from being the first to present its general form of motion in a comprehensive and conscious manner. 
With him, it is standing on its head. It must be inverted in order to discover the rational kernel within the mystical shell. The bourgeoisie and its doctrinaire spokesman, he says, detest the dialectic because it includes in its positive understanding of what exists a simultaneous recognition of its negation, its inevitable destruction. Because the dialectic regards every historically developed form as being in a fluid state, in motion, and therefore grasps its transient aspect as well, and because it does not let itself be impressed by anything, being in its very essence critical and revolutionary. The fact that the movement of capitalist society is full of contradictions impresses itself most strikingly on the practical bourgeoisie when there's a general crisis. Now, Marx in relation to Hegel. There's no question that Hegel's readings were terribly important in shaping the way in which Marx presented his ideas, but as he's already suggested, they do not govern his mode of discovery. His mode of discovery is really set out in the principles of historical materialism, which he began to articulate in the German ideology. And that historical materialism, like I say, starts with what is going on on the surface. Whenever Marx is, is hit with a, a theoretical problem, he never says, okay, I can solve this in the realm of ideas. He always says, oh, I have to go back to the surface and I have to look at the practices. And the practices which are emerging tell me what the idea should be to deal with this problem. He had a terrible problem in capital with handling the circulation of fixed capital. How does the value of a machine circulate through production processes? There's no material transfer of the machine into the shirt. It's not as if bits of the machine fly into the shirt. If it did, it'd be very uncomfortable. No, but somehow or other, the value of the machine has to be incorporated into the product. And the machine maybe lasts for 10 years or 15 years, who knows? And the product is produced on a daily basis. How do you calculate how much of the value of the machine goes into the shirt? What's the calculation? Marx does not have a theoretical answer to that. So what does he do? He starts to say, well, I've got to find people who deal with the circulation of fixed capital. And I look at their accounting systems and see how they dealt with it practically. So actually, when you get to the chapter on fixed capital in volume two of Capital, one of the things he does is he suddenly takes off and says, okay, I'm going to go to the railway engineers. Because they have to come up with some way of depreciating the value of the track, the value of the, the rolling stock, the value of the sleepers, the value of the, you know. And they come up with all, so he goes to the manuals and he suddenly finds these manuals written by the railroad engineers of the early sort of uh, mid 19th century and says, okay, this is how they depreciated. And, and starts to use that as, okay, this is the practice. 
the material practice, and I now take that back into uh, the realm of uh, ideas. So Marx, whenever he's faced with a problem, says, I have to get back to the material practices. That's his materialism. But his abstractions are producing conceptual configurations, which themselves, when you start to put them in motion, tell you a lot about why the practices are the way they are. So this is the dialectic, if you like, of the relationship between ideas and practices, which is very important for his way of thinking and for his mode of investigation. And so that then explains why it is that when faced with something like, okay, how do we understand surplus value? One of the things he does is he starts looking at all of the reports of the of the factory inspectors. They're the ones who tell him what's going on on the surface. That's who tells him how surplus value is being made. It's not that Marx has brilliantly sat under a tree and had a dream about surplus value. But he does also criticize ideas and generate new ideas out of the critique of old ideas. So there is an ideological kind of, uh, or an ideas basis of what he's doing. But he's always, I think, concerned to come back to the realities of the exact actual situation. So the dialectical process here, I like this language. The dialectical, his dialectical method, not is only talking about negation and inevitable destruction, but it regards every historically developed form as being in a fluid state, in motion, and therefore grasps its transient aspect as well. A fluid state, in motion. Now, it's interesting in Marx, the language of causality, physical causality, is not very strong in Marx's representations. This diagram is about flow. It's about a flow of value. The value at the bottom is in money form. It then becomes commodity form. It then becomes a production form. Then it becomes a commodity form. Then it becomes a realization of money form. And then it becomes distributed. And then it kind of flows back. So Marx is looking at the flow of value. Now, when you ask the question, what causes what? Causal language doesn't work very well. We're looking at a process. And Marx is more interested in processes than he is in things. I had a conversation about this the other day with somebody, and I said to them, well, you know, do you live your life as a process, or do you live your life as a thing? The state conceptualizes you as a thing. Gives you a name, an object, body, you know, that kind of thing. But actually, we live life as a process. And Marx is much more interested in the process than the thing. Things are bearers of processes. What's important in this diagram? Commodities, money, production, 
No, what's important is that value is being produced and circulated through the money form, the commodity form, the production form, and the like. So it's the flow. So when Marx wants to talk about the laws of motion of capital, what he wants to do is to talk about the laws of motion of the flow of value within this system. And those laws of motion are embedded within the nature of a capitalist mode of production. And if a society adopts a capitalist mode of production, as Deng Xiaoping did in 78, if you adopt those laws of motion, then certain consequences flow from that. You can't take a part of this system and say that's the only one that matters. In fact, they all matter. And one of the problems, however, that happens is a tendency to suggest that one or other of these elements is more important than another. And because volume one was finished, and because volume one deals in production, there is a tendency in the Marxist scheme of things to say production is more important than everything else. This system would not work without production. Well, that's true. On the other hand, you'll soon find Marx saying it won't work without realization either. And it won't work without monetization. So after a bit, you give up saying, well, okay, this is the the prime mover, and you say, no, we're looking at the flow. And, and the flow becomes important because we're captured in the flow. What we do is caught in this flow. And this flow has certain contradictory character. And it occasionally breaks down and it generates crises. And in the middle of a crisis, we all look at each other and say, what happened? Where did this come from? Why did this happen? And what can be done about it? So that the flow becomes very significant. Now let me go on and just start on the analysis of that founds this. So let's go to the chapter one, and I just want to do the first section of chapter one, if you're not too tired and want to take a rest. You want to take a rest? No? Okay, let's go on to it. Chapter one, the commodity, and section one, the two factors of the commodity, use value and value, substance of value, magnitude of value. Marx starts off with the following statement. The wealth of societies in which the capitalist mode of production prevails, appears as an immense collection of commodities. The individual commodity appears as its elementary form. Our investigation therefore begins with the analysis of the commodity. Now, Marx could have started with all sorts of things. Class struggle, all history, the history of class struggle. He could have started with money, he could have started with, you know. But he starts with the commodity. This is what appears like an a priori construction. Remember back when he kind of said, you know, after I've done the work and you then present the ideas, it seems as if it's an a priori construction. This decision on the commodity is presented 
as an a priori construction. We're going to start with the commodity. Now, it's a great place to start for a variety of reasons. One of them is we all have experience of commodities. We buy commodities. Our daily lives are regulated by the purchase and use of commodities. Some of us are producing commodities. Some of us are doing other things, but we live in a commodity exchange society. And the theory of the commodity is an abstraction because it's anything that is actually being bought and sold in the market. And all of us are buying and selling things in the market, no matter what our gender, our sexual preference, our race, our ethnicity, etc. In other words, this is the most universal thing, the most universal concept that you can imagine. And everybody has some experience of the commodity and therefore will know about the commodity. And I think Marx starts with the commodity for simply that reason that we can go out there and we get into a supermarket, we find ourselves surrounded with commodities. And we use those commodities to reproduce our daily lives. And we live in a society where the commodity is basic. And then he kind of says, all right, well, let's analyze the commodity. The first point we would say about a commodity is that a commodity is useful to us in some way or other. And he then says, every useful thing is, is composed of many properties. It can therefore be useful in various ways. The discovery of these ways, and hence the manifold uses of things, is the work of history. Seems like somehow or other he's not interested in that, because okay, that's, that's history. I'm interested in economy, not history. So also is the invention of socially recognized standards of measurement for the quantities of these useful objects. The diversity, the measures of commodities arises in part from the diverse nature of the objects to be measured. The usefulness of a thing, he says, makes it a use value. Okay, you have a commodity, you see commodities around you. You then ask the question, well, okay, what's it useful for? And he then introduces the abstraction, the idea abstraction coming from the observation of commodity exchange, which is that there are commodity exchanges in which use values are being exchanged. This usefulness does not dangle in midair. It is conditioned by the physical properties. And he then goes on to say, these con the use values constitute the material content of wealth, whatever its social form may be. In the form of society which are considered here, they are also the material bearers of exchange value. Exchange value appears first of all as the quantitative relation, the proportion in which use values of one kind exchange for use values of another kind. How many pairs of shoes exchange for fur coat, say. And then he says, well, exchange value appears first of all as the quantitative relation, the proportion in which use values of one kind exchange for use values of another kind. So many bushels of wheat for 
a ton of iron or whatever. Hence, exchange value appears to be something accidental and purely relative. But this seems, he says, a bit anomalous. And he then goes through his little uh, accountancy thing. Now, when Marx puts on his accountancy hat and starts talking about how many bits of linen you need for a coat and how many bushels of wheat are in this, you know, you kind of start to go to sleep. Um, but so it's not, you know, there's, there's an interesting writing style here, which is, which is the accountancy writing style, which he gets into. So he says, let us now take two commodities, for example, corn and iron. Whatever their exchange relation may be, it can always be represented by an equation in which a given quantity of corn is equated to some quantity of iron. One quarter of corn equals 100 weight of iron. What does this equation signify? It signifies that a common element of identical magnitude exists <clears throat> in two different things, in one quarter of corn and similarly in 100 weight of iron. Both are therefore equal to a third thing, which in itself is neither the one nor the other. Each of them, so far as it is exchange value, must therefore be reducible to this third thing. And he then uses a geometrical example. But what he's doing here is kind of saying, what makes all these different commodities commensurable? So that when you go into the market, you can kind of, uh, obviously, if we put it in monetary terms, we see they're all commensurable because they've all got a price. And, and we can say that this, is, this costs twice as much as that, or that costs three times as much as something else. So he says, if then we disregard, oh, as use values, commodities differ above all in quality, while as exchange values, they can only differ in quantity and therefore do not contain an atom of use value. <clears throat> so when you're looking at the commodity in terms of its exchange value, the use value starts to disappear. If we then disregard the use value of commodities, only one property remains, that of being products of labor. But even the product of labor has already been transformed in our hands. So that all commodities are altogether reduced to the same kind of labor, human labor in the abstract. Here we go, the abstraction. It's not human labor but human labor in the abstract. So let's look at this. All these things now tell us is that human labor power has been expended to produce them. Human labor is accumulated in them. As crystals of this social substance, which is common to them all, they are values, commodity values. The common factor in the exchange relation or in the exchange value of the commodity, is therefore its value. The progress of the investigation will lead us back to exchange value as a necessary mode of expression or form of appearance of value. Very important with Marx. He has three concepts here. Use value, exchange value, and value. Exchange value is not the same as value. Exchange value is the expression or form of appearance of value. Value is a social relation. 
For the present, however, we must consider the nature of value independently of its form of appearance. A use value or useful article has value only because abstract human labor is objectified or materialized in it. How then is the magnitude of this value to be measured? By means of the quantity of the value forming substance, the labor contained in the article. This quantity is measured by its duration. And the labor time is itself measured <clears throat> on the particular scale of hours, days, etc. And he then goes on to say, that, however, the labor that forms the substance of value is equal human labor, the expenditure of identical human labor power. The total labor power of society, which is manifested in the values of the world of commodities, counts here as one homogeneous mass of human labor. And he then goes on to, these, to put it this way. The labor time is that which is necessary on average, or in other words, is socially necessary. Here's the definition, 129. Socially necessary labor time is the labor time required to produce any use value under the conditions of production normal for a given society and with the average degree of skill and intensity of labor prevalent in that society. So that's the rule, socially necessary labor time. Is the, the labor time required to produce any use value under the conditions of production normal for a given society with the average degree of skill and intensity of labor prevalent in that society. That's, that's your first definition. But immediately he qualifies it. Now, this is where the concepts that Marx sets up. He sets up a concept and you read it in a certain way and then he says, okay, don't read it just that way, but we've now got to modify it. The introduction of power looms into England, for example, probably reduced by one half the labor required to convert a given quantity of yarn into woven fabric. In order to do this, the English handloom weaver, in fact, needed the same amount of labor time as before, but the product of his individual hour of labor now only represented half an hour of social labor and consequently fell to one half its former value. What exclusively determines the value, the magnitude of the value of any article is therefore the amount of labor socially necessary or the labor time socially necessary for its production. The individual commodity counts here only as an average sample of its kind. As exchange values, all commodities are merely definite quantities of congealed labor time. But the quantity of that congealed labor time changes with every variation in the productivity of labor. So the productivity of labor then enters into what is socially necessary labor time. And what Marx has done at this point is actually repeated Ricardo's labor theory of value, but he's put something, instead of labor time, it's socially necessary labor time. And by putting in socially necessary, you then have to ask the question, what is socially necessary? If value is socially necessary labor time, then we should have 
And in many ways, you can regard the whole of Volume 1 of Capital as an exploration of what is socially necessary about the labor time. But you see immediately that transformations in productivity, okay, transformations in social product, in, 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 in productivity, labor productivity, affect the value. You cannot talk about the value without actually talking about the productivity of the labor producing that value. The power loom weaver can produce twice as much as the hand loom weaver. Therefore, the value of the cotton cloth goes down and the hand loom weaver only gets what the value is as defined by the power loom weaver. So Marx uses that historically. So socially necessary labor time then becomes dependent upon productivity. This then introduces something, which means that value is not simply about the act of production. Because it's also dependent upon productivity, and the productivity can be affected by outside factors. So listen to then what he says. The value of the commodity would therefore remain constant if the labor time required for its production also remained constant. But the latter changes with every variation in the productivity of labor. This is determined by a wide range of circumstances. It is determined, amongst other things, by the worker's average degree of skill, the level of development of science and its technological application, the social organization of the process of production, the extent and effectiveness of the means of production, and the conditions found in the natural environment. Go back to this diagram for a minute. Marx is saying that the value which is created in production at this first red moment, if you want to call it that, the value created in production is highly sensitive to the natural conditions, which are at the bottom of the page here, the free gifts of nature, but the productivity of labor is dependent upon, for example, if you're growing wheat, on, on the fertility of the land, and the inherent fertility of the land. And if you happen to be on very fertile land, you get a different ver value than if you're somewhere else. And, and, and if you like, the, the, the productivity of US agriculture on the land as contrasted with the productivity of wheat production uh, in Africa. These different productivities are going to give you different value relations. And exactly the same way that the power loom weaver and, and the hand loom weaver get into this kind of relation where socially necessary labor time is established. So what did NAFTA do? Well, it actually put corn producers in Mexico in competition with corn producers in the United States. So the value of corn was established through the NAFTA agreement in such a way that most producers of corn in Mexico found they couldn't survive the competition. 
They were like the handloom weavers, they get driven out. So part of the thing about NAFTA was, you know, the reduction of corn production in, in Mexico. So the, the value relation then is dependent on what, what is going on in, in, in terms of the mobilization of natural resources in relationship to labor productivity. But notice also that he talks about a wide range of circumstances, other things, by the worker's average degree of skill, the level of development of science and its technological application, social organization. We've got the free gifts of human nature, which have a role to play in terms of this process. So the value is not simply established in production as production. It's established by in relationship to all of these other elements surrounding society. So the value theory is not simply about the congealing of value through the act of production. That is the crucial feature, to be sure, but it is contingent also on these other elements. And this question of productivity, as he rules it on top of 131, he says, in general, the greater the productivity of labor, the less the labor time required to produce an article, the less the mass of labor crystallized in that article and the less its value. Now, to the degree that capital has always been about increasing the productivity of labor for reasons which we will establish much later in the text, but to the degree it's doing that, it's actually constantly reducing value. Because the amount of socially necessary labor time is being reduced by increasing productivity. And the emphasis upon increasing productivity is absolutely critical. This, of course, what Deng Xiaoping was after when he released the, opened the door to market competition, increased productivity of labor. But if you do that, you change the value relation. And the value relations become very dynamic. Now, he ends up this first section with the following observation. A thing can be a use value without being a value. Okay, all right. It's not being produced through the market. I have something which is distinctively mine, and I, I make something, and I use it for myself. A thing can be useful in a product of human labor without being a commodity. Yeah, okay. I grow tomatoes in my backyard, and I, I consume them, and so, you know. He who satisfies his own need with the product of his own labor admittedly creates use values, but not commodities. In order to produce commodities, he must not only produce use values, but use values for others, social use values. Getting the idea of social use values. And then he says, and not merely for others. The medieval peasant produced a corn rent for the feudal lord. In order to become a commodity, the product must be transferred to the other person for whom it serves as a use value through the medium of exchange. That is, a commodity is something that is produced to be bought and sold in the market. And that is commodity production. Finally, and here's a real biggie, nothing can be of value without being an object of utility. If the thing is useless, so is the labor contained in it. The labor does not count as labor and therefore creates no value. 
Now, this is just one sentence. But basically what it says in this diagram is that in the circulation of, of, of value, the moment in which value is produced has to be paralleled by a moment in which the value is realized in the market. Value does not exist unless it is both produced and realized. If, Marx says here, it is not realized, then it's not value. We have expenditure of labor, which produces no value because it cannot be marketed. Now, as I've suggested, most of volume one assumes there's no problem in the market. So this issue of realization is not taken up in any depth whatsoever in the rest of volume one of capital. But we will find various moments in the text when Marx will say, okay, this is a realization problem. And we will find various moments in the text when he kind of says, oh, well, this is about the free gifts of human nature. Oh, well, this is about the me metabolic relation to nature. In other words, all of the features that he's introduced here, which are surrounding value, are present in the text in minor places. And I want you, when you're reading, to watch out when he introduces these other elements because they form a context in which value as a production process and the production aspects of value, there's no question that that is the central issue that Marx is going to be looking at throughout volume one of Capital. But what he said here, right at the outset, is it's not the whole story. In fact, the productivity of labor depends on natural conditions of production, depends upon cultural history, depends upon inherited skills, it depends upon knowledge and technology and all the rest of it, where it depends on all sorts of things. And above all, it depends on somebody wanting the commodity that's produced and being prepared to buy it. And it's not only being prepared to buy it, they have to have enough money to buy it, and they have to have a want, need, and desire for it. If they don't have a want, need, and desire, then it's no value. If they have a want, need, and desire, but they have no money to buy it, it's no value. So the value theory in Marx is not simply about you know, labor and production. He emphasizes that, and the productivity of labor is crucial, but it is not the only part of the totality. And if you take the perspective of the totality, you would say that these other elements are, are very significant. And actually, it is interesting when you're reading volume one to see how frequently these other elements crop up. Usually as sort of one-liners and sometimes brief paragraph here. And I'll draw attention to them as we go through. But notice what's happened here. We started with the commodity and commodity exchange. We are all involved in commodity exchange. We live by commodity exchange. Okay, there are some people somewhere in the world who don't live by commodity exchange. They're not within the capitalist mode of production. But what Marx is doing is theorizing what the commodity exchange is about. And he said the commodity is a unified concept, but it has a dual aspect. The use value and the exchange value. 
there's a kind of opposition between use value and exchange value. If you're interested in commanding the exchange value, you've got to sacrifice the use value. If you want the use value, you've got to sacrifice the exchange value. I always like this way of thinking about housing markets. What are you more interested in, the exchange value of your property or the use value of the property? And what do you do if you want to realize the exchange value? Well, you leave yourself with no use value. And the whole structure of housing markets is around use value and exchange value. You're relying upon the exchange value system to deliver the use values. And of course, the market system is inherently biased. And this is what Marx is going to be showing again and again and again. That the exchange value system does very well for the rich and the ultra rich. You don't have a problem finding a house. You have a McMansion out in the Hamptons or somewhere. And then you have, uh, you know, like Bloomberg, you have a, a house in, in Mayfair and you have a house you know, just up here and you have one in the Bahamas. They have no problem about you know, getting the use value of the house because they've got all the exchange value they need. But the exchange value system does not deliver affordable housing to the mass of the population. So the exchange value system screws up the, the delivery of the use value. Everybody would like to have a mansion in the, in, in the Hamptons, I'm sure. But that can't happen. So use value and exchange value are, if you like, two aspects of the same thing, the commodity. But they do different things, and they are, to some degree, they form what Marx calls an antinomy, an opposition. And that opposition can, at a certain point, become a matter of crisis. So the use value, exchange value. But then, behind the exchange value, there lies the shadowy social relation called value, which is socially necessary labor time. And then, what Marx does is to say, well, actually, value is not value unless it's also a use value. This is a dialectical configuration. You start with a unity, you go to a duality, which is use value and exchange value. And then from that, you move from exchange value as the expression of something else, and that something else is value, and that value then links back to use value. And therefore, this is the kind of the theoretical framework of the commodity. Marx is theorizing the commodity, and he does it through these conceptual apparatuses. So we'll stop here, and I want next time to do the rest of chapter one and chapter two. Get used to this development of these ideas. You move step by step as time goes on, and you'll get used to the complications in due course. So let's stop here, and maybe we should, uh, do you have any uh, questions? Can you hear me? Um, so we got a question from Malcolm online. Uh, in the diagram, should free gifts of human nature be properly understood as unwaged labor? 
Even if Marx conceived of it at the former at the time, he gives us the tools to recognize it as the latter. Can we view this term in the particular light of our present feminist moment? Free gifts of, uh, of uh, human nature are partly derived from the knowledge and understanding and the capacities which have been culturally developed over hundreds and thousands of years in the mind of the laborer. Capital does not uh, make those capacities, it draws upon those capacities. And in drawing on those cap capacities, whether it pays for them or not, or treats them as waged or waged, will depend upon the circumstances. I call them free gifts of nature, because the labor force in general has certain capacities and powers, which are largely a result of uh, cultural and other histories, and those capacities and powers uh, allow certain forms of production and certain forms of productivity to flourish uh, in certain circumstances in ways which uh, are very special. Uh, the same thing applies to the whole kind of questions of social reproduction, which we will go into uh, on another occasion, because the question of social reproduction is again going to be about uh, the creation of uh, as far as capital is concerned, not necessarily as far as society is concerned. As far as the capitalist mode of production, the social, uh, the social reproduction process is about the reproduction of the laborer in a given state, uh, which is able to come back into the production process and produce the next day. So that social reproduction has certain functions in relationship to the uh, uh, capitalist mode of production. Again, Marx is not talking about the capitalism in general. He's talking about what is required for the capitalist mode of production to function, uh, to reproduce, and ultimately, of course, he's going to be talking very much about its ex expansion. Now, whether it's paid for or not depends very much on contingent circumstances. Okay, thank you. I'm going to ask one more question and then we'll take questions from the floor. Uh, Jacob from Australia says, how does the question of value, how does the question of value determined by socially necessary labor time not boil down to the question of scarcity? Value appears to be determined by a society's capacity to produce a commodity or its ability to combat the negative of scarcity. Could we not reframe the value of wants, needs, and desires as a quantity determined by the abundance of those needs, wants, and desires, regardless of whether that abundance is produced by human labor or not? Yeah, this is a very familiar question that arises. It's, it's really about uh, the issue of supply and demand. Marx, in Volume 1 of Capital, takes the position that He's not going to be interested in supply and demand because when supply and demand are in equilibrium, they don't actually explain anything. Uh, supply and demand does not explain why a car costs so much more than, uh, say, a shirt. 
obviously, Marx kind of points out that in the market on a given day, there can be a disequilibrium between supply and demand and prices can be going up and down, this kind of stuff. So there is a, a function of supply and demand, which is to bring you to that equilibrium where su supply and demand are in equilibrium. And at that point, you would understand why it is that a shirt costs maybe half as much as a pair of shoes. Um, but you can't get the distinction between, say, the value of uh, shirts versus shoes by saying that uh, shoes are more in demand than shirts, or there's a greater scarcity of shoes relative to, you know. What you do is you kind of say, well, when everybody who can afford it is uh, getting enough uh, in the way of shirts and shoes, then the value of shirts and shoes are going to be in a certain ratio, and that ratio is not going to be explained by scarcity. It's not going to be explained by supply and demand. It's going to be explained by something else, which Marx is getting at here, which is, of course, socially necessary labor time, labor content, uh, and the like. Uh, the, the difficulty uh, with, with this uh, in contemporary circumstances uh, we will get to in due course, which is the fact that many things can have a price but don't have a value. And uh, right now, when you kind of look at uh, the prices of certain things, uh, they're all about reputation uh, and reputational prices and and, and uh, uh, so there's a, there's a whole kind of set of questions of that sort uh, around. But Marx, again, opens a possibility to that uh, later on. But right now, uh, throughout Volume 1 of Capital and throughout Volume 2 of Capital, uh, Marx is essentially going to say that supply and demand really don't... They, they help explain how things can work in the market, but they don't explain what the different uh, values of uh, commodities are in... in, in uh, when they're in equilibrium. Uh, thank you. So we have about 12 more minutes. Uh, so we invite people up to the mic uh, to ask questions, and we'll alternate between the two mics. If people have questions, they'd like to ask Professor Harvey. Hey, David. Hi. So as the amount of socially necessary labor time that's needed to produce something uh, diminishes as capitalism advances, doesn't that also diminish the value of what's already been produced and is already out there? And so then, if so, then what are the consequences of that in, uh, and contradictions that that brings about? Well, yes, if, 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 for example, you're dealing with, uh, say, uh, um, uh, an item, let's say computers or something like that, the value of your computer is your depreciated value of your using it over a certain period, but you may then find that, you know, the system is now producing computers at a quarter of the price. And so, in effect, your computer has been devalued by the fact that uh, you could go out and get another computer, which would be uh, half the price of the one that you purchased. So yes, there's a devaluation that goes on, but this is particularly important in terms of the circulation of fixed capital, which I've already said that is it's a very serious kind of problem for Marx and actually for economics in general, how to deal with the depreciation of, of fixed capital and uh, the devaluation 
that can come from the reduction of uh, values because of technological change. This is more likely to occur initially anyway because of the transformations, for instance, the natural variability. If you get extremely good harvest, you get a lot of product, the value is very, very low, then you get, so, so you look at the, what's happening in commodity futures or something like that, and you see things jumping all over the place, and, and how much you have to pay for, for, for coffee will depend upon the nature of the harvest, and a, a blight hits Brazil or something, and, and so things then, then, then change. So again, Marx's argument here is that value is not fixed. It's constantly in transformation through technological change and through all of these other elements that enter into the society, the science and the technology and the natural conditions and all the rest of it. So one of the things you have to do here is to recognize that the concept of value as it's first introduced is given an initial definition, which is immediately modified by the productivity condition which is immediately modified by all right, all these other elements which enter into affecting product, uh, productivity, which is then modified again by saying the conditions in the market are, are, are there. So actually, one of my arguments would be that the theory of value, which has been established so far, by introducing this notion of social necessity, has created an opening in which things which are socially necessary in this period are not socially necessary uh, in the next period. And so actually the fluidity of the value concept comes very much into play. So I, I'm very much opposed to those kinds of thinkers, even in the Marxist tradition, who tend to treat the value theory as something which is kind of a, a fixed anchor uh, to a dynamic situation. It is actually a dynamic moving uh, element uh, which uh, can, in terms of its motion, part of the law of motion is going to be in the nature of value itself. And in its law of motion can be the source of crises, so that we can get crises of value formation. And I would argue in some ways that we have been sitting within a crisis of value formation for the last 30, 40 years. Um, but we can get into uh, what that might mean later on when we look more clearly at questions of technological dynamism and technological change and organizational change. But yes, uh, things can get devalued as well as valued. And one of the ways in which they get devalued is uh, by uh, the, the transformations in what is socially necessary about the labor time, which is incorporated in a particular product at this historical and geographical mo moment in, uh, in, in time and space. Uh, and and, and as, as we start to change the the, the, the uh, if you like, the, the globalization dynamic, then the whole value system uh, gets reconfigured and re redesigned. Good evening. Hi. My question is related with the interpretation of uh, exchange value and use value in the sense of uh, you were mentioning, you, you were defining it as an uh, antinomy. Um, and I was, well, one of the parts uh, Marx is related, he's explaining exchange value as a contradiction in adjecto. So what that in, means in what? In contradiction uh, in terms is the, tra oh, yes, the yes, translation right, in yes. English. Yes. yes. So basically the idea would be, can we consider 
use value and exchange value, first of all, as social relationships? And if so, if, if, they, if we consider them as contradictions, uh, do they have like, um, do they represent class struggle as such? Among them, like inside commodity, we find class struggle. Uh, you don't uh, at this this point in the analysis again. Um, what 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 Marx does is to sort of unfold the uh, an, uh, an analysis, sort of step by step. At this point, uh, he has certain things that he can say, but other things you'll find much later on are get get clearly uh, modified. The idea uh, of the commodity as a contradiction in terms, he, he has this language where he says, well, it seems to be. And there's something about the language here which is very important to, to acknowledge. Uh, the very first line is uh, that in the, in the society we're about to consider, wealth appears as a vast collection of commodities. Always be careful when Marx uses the word appears. Appears is not is. Appears is its form of appearance. So exchange value is the form of appearance of value. It's not value itself. Uh, and the antinomy that exists between use value and exchange value is uh, and he calls it an antinomy rather than a contradiction to start with. At certain point in the analysis, it will move from being called an antinomy, which is an opposition, to being called a, con a, 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 a contradiction, an absolute contradiction, and which we will, which we will see that exchange value considerations interfere with the creation of use values. I mentioned the case of affordable housing, which is an obvious case where the exchange value structure and we're always told the free market will solve all the problems and therefore we must have a free market in housing production and uh, unutilization. And we're told that again and again and again. But it's clear from anybody who looks at any situation anywhere that there's a global crisis of affordable housing because everybody has kind of said, well, we've got to solve this problem of delivery of use values via an exchange value system. Uh, that is incapable of doing that. So this is where class struggle can come in. But this is a this is a this is way down the line, as it were. And in particular, uh, over housing, we're dealing with something in the consumption sphere rather than dealing simply with the with the production uh, production side. But I think the, uh, the 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 main thing that 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 is being looked looked at here is just to kind of set up a situation where we clearly see that this unitary object, this book, is, an ex is, is a use value and an exchange value. Uh, and and uh, there's no particular big contradiction. And you can't actually divide the, the book and say this is the exchange value piece, this is the uh, use value piece. It's a social determination. So I think your observation that this is a, a social process is terribly important because the social process is very is very material, but it has material and it has material manifestations, but is not in itself material. And so, one of the things that Marx will do uh, as we go on is to make very clear that value as a social relation is immaterial. 
but, it, but, but objective. So he comes up with this notion of things that are immaterial, but objective. Now it's very, people find this very strange because Marx is considered, you know, generally viewed as a kind of crass materialist. But one of his key concepts, which is value, is immaterial. But the point here is that it's, a, it's immaterial because this is the abstraction which capital makes or a commodity exchange makes. So what Marx tends to do is to say, you know, I'm going to follow the abstractions and I'm going to follow those abstractions as, as they operate socially as well as materially. So he's constantly uh, concerned with that. And yes, uh, you're dealing with social relations. The use value is a social relation, ultimately, even though you can give its material content. Exchange value is a social relation, even though you can give its material content. Value is a social relation, but you can't give its material content, which is the, which is the problem. So it needs a form of expression, which means that value cannot exist without its form of expression, which is exchange value, which is a representation, not the thing itself. Okay. All right, so next week, uh, in two weeks, uh, do, uh, and I think it's best, uh, if you really want to get, uh, get stuff out of this, you should try and read ahead. It's very important to do that. Because then you can start to formulate your own ideas, have your own kind of questions. If you just come in here and sit and listen to me, you know, kind of after a bit, you'll go to sleep. Uh, but I think that uh, you're going to learn much more if, you're, if you go ahead with the reading and try as much as you can. I mean, in a given week, of course, you know, we all know what happens. Something happens and you say, well, get to do it. But the best way to do this is for you to read ahead as much as you can, try and figure out what's going on. And then when I come and talk, we'll be able to do the clarifications, I think, more, more quickly and more easily if uh, there's an audience that's uh, already read ahead in the text and is familiar with what they think Marx is doing. Okay, so let's leave it here and we'll see you in two weeks' time. Chapters, just chap up to the end of chapter two. For next week. So finish chapter one, end of chapter two.